and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. The first thing you can do is share these conversations on social media. Today's guest especially is somebody that is inspiring, especially for young women. So share it. Share it with people that you know. Send an email. Shoot a text with the link to the podcast to somebody that you think will enjoy it. Um, And let's just continue to give a megaphone to these conversations and promote these amazing people that I'm fortunate to get to sit across from on a regular basis. So thanks for those that have shared, and hopefully you will be inspired to share this conversation as well. The other way you can help us out is by going to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show for as little as $2 a month, as much as $10 a month. And it just helps us continue to build this thing out and legitimize the work that we do and the time that I spend on interviewing these incredible people. Thanks to those of you that continue to do that. And we really do appreciate this community and we appreciate the growth that the podcast has had in the last year or so. Now to today's guest. So Danielle Cantor, I could read her bio for you uh, and I could read it, you know, right verbatim. uh, But instead of doing that, I'm just going to share who Danielle is and, and why I think she's an intentional performer. So I met Danielle years ago and we chatted at a basketball game and right away I could tell that Danielle was A, very, very sharp. Be very passionate about helping people and see she knows her stuff when it comes to basketball. You will not find a smarter, more competent person when it comes to representing basketball players than Danielle. And Danielle is an MBPA certified agent. She has worked alongside David Falk, who is a legend in the sports agent industry and is a past podcast guest. And uh, her and David have worked alongside to negotiate millions of dollars of contracts and also millions of dollars of endorsements over the years. And Danielle is a relationship based person. So she has been really helpful to me as I've built my practice. She's been really helpful to get us podcast guests on the show. And Danielle is somebody who values people, who values helping people, and is really at her core a servant leader. And that will come across in this conversation. She was also a D1 athlete. She played soccer at University of Pennsylvania, where she was a goalie. And she'll talk about how that experience as a goalie helped shape who she is today and how it gave her a framework and gave her an opportunity to spark her competitive spirit, which she says has been with her for as long as she can remember. 
So Danielle is a competitor. She's a winner, but she's also a very caring person and is a servant leader. She's somebody who wants to help make people better and help them unlock their potential. So I know you're going to love this conversation with somebody who I really consider to be fearless. She is somebody who is constantly evolving and trying to get better. And she is somebody who I consider to be a mentor, a friend, and certainly an intentional performer. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Danielle Cantor. Danielle, welcome to the office. You've been here before. We got our little mini basketball hoop and my Brianisms board, which is falling apart. Uh, excited to have you, though. It is falling apart. I know. I, I think I think you need to in- invest in some <laughs> better equipment there. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> the uh, the white we've got. So people that don't know that haven't been here, we've got these white like sticky things that you put on the wall and then you can write quotes and all kinds of stuff. So that thing's been fun for me, but I think I need to just get like a full board or something. Yeah. You can paint the whole wall with that, with that special paint that makes it a whiteboard. I looked into that and everything I read said, do this, mm-hmm. but it's falling off <laughs> now. So anyway, um, back to you. So thanks for coming in. Uh, excited, for having me. excited to chat with you today. We've had many conversations over the years about basketball, life, real estate, you name it, and uh, have really enjoyed getting to know you and your husband and uh, just great people. And uh, especially enjoy our conversations around the mental side of basketball. And I know in your world, whenever I talk to any agent, they always are telling me, gosh, I feel like I'm I'm a psychologist. And oh, really? I thought I was the only one. You're not the only one. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that agents often have to do is really think about the human being and and how to help that human being unlock their potential. So I know we're going to get into that and we're going to talk about your role and your job and how you serve your clients. But before we do that, I know you were a stud soccer player. And so I wanted to go back and learn a little bit about Danielle, the athlete, because I didn't know you as a kid. All I know is what you've told me, uh, but I want to go back there and find out what were you like growing up uh, on the soccer field? And I know you had a passion for playing soccer. So I'd love to start there and, and maybe we'll, we'll end up talking about what you do now, but let's, let's start with soccer. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, very passionate about sports in general. When I was younger, soccer in particular, um, I think I, you know, I started at a very young age. I had a, an older brother, very close in age, so we grew up doing everything together. We played outside every single day. You know, I keep telling my kids when we were growing up, we after school, you get home and you're outside. From the time you get home from school, we used to call it night games in my neighborhood where I was growing up, where we would play like one game after another, whether it was football, full on tackle football, or soccer. Um, or baseball, but also we played a game called seek and hide, which is the opposite of hide and seek, where um, when you find someone, you hide with them and then keeps going. Each person kind of hides with the group. Um, we play all sorts of fun, act- like nature finding activities. But the point is you're always outside from the time you get home from school until your parents have to call you inside for dinner. And they're literally calling you 10 times before you actually listen and come inside because you, you just don't want to come in. And um, so that, so I think, you know, a passion for physical activity from an early age. Um, I think I was born with that. I think it's in, you know, your DNA, um, really competitive from a very young age. As long as I can remember, I, I was competitive. I wanted to be better than my brother at anything and everything. Was your brother also competitive? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) I think it, you know, 
he would probably disagree. I think maybe when he was younger, he cared more. And then at some point, he just didn't want to put in the effort. But no, I, I don't think he's competitive like I am. And what's the age difference? Um, two years. Two years. And he's bringing you to tackle football and you know all of these games at, at I, a young age? I would like to clarify. I don't think he was bringing me to anything. I think I was there you i brought up. myself and i showed <laughs> up you know we just it was neighborhood games and um I, I i think i was always the only girl and i never thought about that until i now you know look back and reflect because it just no one pointed it out it wasn't a problem and i think i probably proved myself because i was tough as nails and what were these age ranges where you're competing in the neighborhood um uh, most of them were right around our ages and i think one or two of the guys in the neighborhood were a few years older. Are you talking like 10 years old when you were doing this, eight years old? Um, probably like like five or six until 10 or 11. And then, at, you know, at that point I was already playing competitive soccer and that was taking up almost all of my time. So tell me about soccer. So um, my brother played soccer competitively, um, NCSL, which was the local league on Bethesda Soccer Club. So by the time... You know, I had played MSI for a couple of years, and I don't think I was very good. My father was a coach, and um, I don't know that I was, you know, this fantastic athlete from the time I was born. Looking back now, I always, you know, people always say, you know, she's an athlete because, you know, I have the coordination and the ability to be pretty good. But I was never like great at soccer um, on my MSI teams. But we, I only, we only played MSI for you know, two or three years. And then when we got to the level where we could play travel soccer, um, because my brother was doing it, like I said, I think my father just made the decision to take our team to um, the Bethesda Soccer Club and try out for the travel team. And he decided he was not going to be the coach anymore, which was probably a good thing, um, you know, bringing in experts. So at that time, somewhere around, I'd probably have to check with my parents to confirm, but somewhere around um, probably like age 10, I would say, is when I became a goalie. And that's when I think everything changed for me with soccer because I was really good. Um, because I think that in soccer, at least at that age especially, it's probably like 90% mental and 10% physical to be a goalie specifically. You know, you're not running all that much. It's not, you don't, it doesn't require the stamina or the physical conditioning that's required to be a field player on the pitch. Um, but clearly you need to have really good eye-hand coordination, which I do, and um, you need to be coordinated um, to be able to dive for the ball and put yourself in the best position. But I think it's so much more mental. What, what qualities do you think make up a good goalie? Um, Got to be a badass. Um, fearless. I think I was extremely fearless on the soccer field. I'm laughing because before we fired up the mic, and we won't go down this rabbit hole, but we were trying to figure out it's election time here, and we were just having a conversation about Donald Trump and what is the quality that he has. And uh, that was what we ended. We, we talked about it for probably 20 minutes, and that was what you funny. mentioned is like he has this fearlessness uh, and, and not a care for consequence. And as you're telling your story, I'm thinking like, gosh, a, a soccer goalie or a lacrosse goalie or any goalie, field hockey, yeah, goal, yeah. there needs to hockey. be hockey goalie, like a level of fearlessness. The ball is coming you're at your face. Yeah, you're sacrificing your body. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is now, if you want to really get into that, we were talking about fearlessness with Trump. I I would not 
consider I would not categorize myself as fearless in life. Hmm. I'm I'm more conservative. I'm not a huge risk taker. Um, confident, yes, but fearless, no. Which is interesting. But you know, throughout the years I played soccer, when I got on the field, oh yeah, I was I was fearless. And ten year old you in the neighborhood also sounds pretty fearless. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so then that's what soccer was for me. It was, you know, when when the game started and I got on the field, it was not overanalyzing anything like I do, you know, in life. It was not being methodical and analytical with every decision. The decisions were, um, you know, you had to, you had to react. It was, you know, the reaction time is key with a goalkeeper. They were in the moment and I was willing to sacrifice my body and sacrifice everything for the greater good of the team. Did mom and dad play sports or where no. did that come from for you? Um, I think just my brother have, you know, growing up with a brother so close in age and, um, but he didn't, he didn't play goalie. No. So your dad said, we're going to put you in goalie. No, I don't think it was his idea. I don't Mm. even remember how it came about. Honestly, you don't. Um, and wait, time out. Let's go back there. You don't, do you remember the first game you played at goalie or you don't? I really don't. I, in MSI, you take ter- like back then. Yeah, for those that don't know MSI, it's Montgomery soccer, or whatever. It's like rec. It's, it's rec, rec league. It's rec soccer. It's rec league soccer. I was awesome. And listen, when we so were when we when we were growing up, <laughs> yeah. soccer was not what it is, you know, for youth in America today. It, I always, you know, joke. I jo- I jokingly say that if I were growing up today, there's no way I would have been as good as I as successful as I was in you know on the soccer field. But so so in the rec league environment everyone's playing every position you don't even really know the positions initially and so you know you wore they they switched off this white penny that's what that's how you knew you were a goalie and you just put it on and you would play one half and i think everyone took turns i probably and i don't think i was very good at first but then i quickly learned about the mental aspect of the game and cutting off the angles and when you come out to get the ball and being aggressive and and it was more about the strategies um, and understanding the fundamentals of the game than my physical talent, my raw talent or my physical ability. You mentioned something earlier that I want to tug on a little bit, which is competitiveness. And you said, I've always been like that. Walk me through the differences between competitiveness and fearlessness. Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think they probably overlap quite a bit. But I think, you know, competitiveness is... It's always about winning. It's about, um, you know, the desire to win, the desire to be the best. And, you know, for me, competitive. I wanted to. I was. I always wanted to compete. I was always competing with my brother to be better than him. I was competing with my peers. I was competing with myself. Um, and I think fearlessness, for me, which is what I was just saying, you know, in regards to Trump too. For me. It, it's it was more in the moment it was more not you not allowing oneself to have enough time not to be fearless or to you know consider the risks or the consequences it's just the approach to being in the moment and being at your best in the moment on the field or wherever you are it's cool it almost sounds like having the fearlessness to compete in that moment and just do what you can to try to be better in that space And it was interesting you said, but I'm not fearless outside the lines, but you've always been competitive outside Mm -hmm. the lines. Mm -hmm. Because, and I don't think that, um, I don't think that 
some that someone can it cannot that someone can't be competitive um and without being fearless i think that there are plenty of competitive people out there that are not fearless um and it's it's more about how you fuel the competitive drive and what approach you have and what your strategy is to to being competitive and to competing and to winning yeah there's actually a lot of people that are driven by fear of failure mm-hmm. which is Absolutely. the opposite of fearlessness like Michael Strahan talked about it. Serena Williams talks about the fear of failure. Like, I will not lose. Um, And then they focus on competitiveness. Right, but I think that there's a difference between the fear of failure because in that case, you do just enough not to fail. Um, You know, you you accomplish your goal of, of, you know, not failing per se, but that doesn't mean you win. For me, life was always about winning. It really was. It still is. And, and, you know, I think about that often because I look at my – I have two daughters, um, young daughters, eight and six, and I wonder if either of them has that. And I, I'm just not sure if either of them do. And I think that you're born – I think it's in your DNA. I think you're born that way. I th- I don't – I mean, yes, it, you know, you can hone your craft over time and you can become – you know, things, it, it, things evolve over time in terms of how – you um you know deal with your competitive drive and 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 what that does for you in life but i still think that there's you know part of it's just in your dna because i mean you look at so many people out there when you talk about the whole nurture versus nature thing and you know raised the same way and the same you got plenty of siblings who were raised by the same parents in the same environment nurtured the same way but you know completely different makeup yeah. I love the idea of nurturing your nature and sort of combining the both, right? Sure. Like, I do I, too. I agree with you. Like I think having two little kids myself, you just see the difference between the two. Uh, and we have a daughter who's one and a half and she's fierce, like mm-hmm. fierce, fierce. And my son who's three, who's, he's just not as fierce or fearless is probably the right word. And and we raised them the same way. They're exactly. 14 months apart. I don't really know what we did differently. Right. And you see how young they are. You so can tell young. now- that, so young. you know, you're talking about a year and a half and you can tell. That yeah. And, and competitiveness. I had a coach, a college basketball coach pull me aside one day and said, how can I, can, I don't, is there anything I can do to make my players more competitive? And I said, look, competitive spirit is something that's really, really tricky. Um, I do believe that environments and cultures can help bring out their best nurturing their nature. Mm-hmm. But I definitely th- agree with you that I don't know when that starts or where it comes from. Um, but the word wired gets talked about mm-hmm. a lot when you're talking about competitive. I want to flip back to the word that you said, though, which is I competed to win. So how do you define winning? I don't think there is a clear definition of winning. I think it's um, however oneself chooses to define it in that moment. How do moment. you define it? Um, ach- you know, achieving a goal, um, having a positive outcome. Um, y- you can you can look at that, you can approach that so many different ways. Like, you know, I've been speaking to a lot of groups lately, um, students or younger, younger working professionals, um, you know, about my experience in the sports industry as a, you know, the only female agent in the NBA right now and giving advice. And they always ask, you know, the same questions. And I always talk about, 
um, the, the little wins. Like I, you know, I think for me, like they're going, you know, it's, it's all about expectations and managing expectations and what, you know, I'm, I'm a goal setter and I, I'm always going to find a way to achieve my goals and to ultimately win. And, um, you know, you can have a lot of little wins and speaking of a negotiation in, in basketball, particularly because that's, you know, what I spend my time doing. Um, you know, there's, there's the big win, right? Did you win the negotiation? Did you get, you know, exactly the terms that you wanted, but you know, you're talking about length and compensation. Those are the two big wins in a, in a player contract, but there's so many little wins, the attention to detail and the areas where the lit, what I call the little wins can make such a big impact, um, you know, are, are almost as important as the big wins. So I think winning is not, um, you know, necessarily bla- very black and white. And oftentimes you'll hear people saying, I certainly feel this way that, you know, I, I'm only competing with myself. I only want to do better than I did last time or, be, you know, it, what, however you define that. You, you can be competing with yourself. You can be competing. It, it, you don't know who the competition is. So for me, I'm just very competitive overall. And it doesn't mean winning or losing. It doesn't mean beating someone else. It means highly driven, highly motivated, A++ personality, always trying to do better always trying to do better than myself, than the competition, whomever it is in the particular situation. What's cool about the word compete, the origins of it are, I think they're Greek and it means to strive with. And if you think about competition, it requires two people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to be competitive if there's no competition. And shifting the idea of competitiveness as a zero-sum game and really understanding that I need that person to bring out my best and actually appreciating that element of competition because I think there is a portion of our society that looks at competition as a negative, right? And says, oh, well, we don't use compete and we don't go in that direction. But for you, it's been a guiding principle and a guiding light to help you bring out your best so that you're winning the best version of whatever it is that you look like. Does that sound like a absolutely, logical? Absolutely. And I understand when you say, you know, parts of our society um, don't really value the idea of competitiveness. And I totally appreciate that. Um, so much of my career, you know, we, we were, we got a little off track. We were talking about, you know, soccer and, and that, that, you know, that Danielle, that version of Danielle, but my adult life and my career has not been that I've, I've been um, way more, reserved than the Danielle on the soccer field or, or the Danielle growing up. I have, um, I, by design, I preferred to be behind the scenes and to make a career for myself that way, not necessarily being out there, not, you know, getting a lot of credit for things. Um, but really, uh, per, you know, adding value to our, to the team, to my partner, David Falk, you know, in negotiations by being that behind the scenes person, um, providing analysis and, um, you know, over preparing for negotiations with the analytical data and, you know, um, comparisons and whatnot, but really being the behind the scenes person. And so when you talk about winning and you talk about being competitive, I'm always competitive still in my career. But I don't know if that always um, comes through in in my work. 
because I seem more reserved and without ego. It's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about my role and I'm also thinking about the coaches that I work with. And the, I think the challenging thing about being a coach, which I consider myself or the coaches that I serve is that you just lack a lot of control. And so I think of, let's just use a basketball coach. Like they don't get to shoot the basketball mm -hmm. for their player. Mm -hmm. And I think about you being highly competitive, but sort of saying, all right, I'm going to play this behind the scenes role. And I'm just curious for you, how has that worked for you being very competitive, but not having control of maybe the destination sure. or the outcome? In my career, I'm competitive for my clients. I want the best for our clients. Um, and I'm competitive in my in my my part in um, the success of our team of you know fame our company when we're going into a negotiation. I want my you know my contributions to be significant in the wins, and and I know they have been, and I know you know David is um, overly generous in making it known to me and to others um, how valuable my contributions and my role have been in, in those wins. So I think, you know, that's one way to um, sort of feed my competitive drive. But, um, you know, my similar to what you're saying, like when you're a coach and, and in your line of work, and going back to what we were saying when we first started talking about, you know, being like an amateur psychologist for my clients, I... Um, I believe in, in our clients and I, um, you know, really get, you know, get to know them and I care about them and I, and I really try to understand, um, what motivates each individual and what drives them and how I can help them in whatever way achieve, um, you know, their fullest potential. And I think that's where, where I can, where I sort of fuel the competitive drive into my clients. Like I get real, you know, gritty and real competitive when I'm talking to them about, um, you know, bringing out their, their best selves on and off the court. You mentioned goal setting earlier. When did you start? You said, I've always been a goal setter. When mm -hmm. did you start setting goals for yourself? As long as I can remember. Well, you remember like the first set of goals that you had and walk me through the process for how you think about. No, it's, I mean, little with soccer, you know, it's like, I wanted to get a certain number of juggles, you know, at the end of practice, everyone, you know, each member of the team would get up in the, in front of the group and have to juggle a certain number of times on, you know, using different body parts. And so I would set goals for myself by, I'm going to practice at home. And by Thursday, I'm going to get to a hundred. And by, you know, Saturday, I'm going to get to 120 and I'm not going to stop until I do. Um, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like my mind is constantly going when I get in bed at night, as long as I can remember, um, you know, from the time I was really young, it was short term, mostly short term goals. I don't think when I was younger, I had long term goals. Like I want to be here in five years and I want to be, this is where I want to go to college. Um, and I, I, I never thought that way and I probably still don't. Um, and it served me well, maybe, maybe it doesn't work for others, but for me, I never, I never really get caught up on the long-term goal or, you know, where I want to, how I'm going to get somewhere in five years. I'm very focused on, um, you know, the tangible, achievable short-term goals because they're, I think that they're more measurable. 
Um, so you, so you, from a goal setting standpoint, would say, "I want to do this by next week or yep. this by the next day," mm-hmm. but you weren't as vision oriented as far as saying, "Hey, five years from now, I want to be in this place or space." Right. Okay, I got it. And so that served you well to acquire skill in soccer and, and get better and improve. And it sounds like you went from being uh, okay to being real good. Um, and then I oh, know. And then so I was real good for a while. We, you know, our our team, Bethesda Shakers. Shout out to any Shakers out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we were we went to the you know the Eastern Regional Finals. We you know we were a really good team, competitive team um, for a lot of years. And you know they became family. And then I had a bit of a setback. So I was pretty short growing up. Um, I had a late growth spurt. And um, in eighth grade. I, we, we went to, it might've been seventh grade. I'm not, it was summer, I think between seventh and eighth. Um, we made it to the Eastern region, regional finals, which is a big deal. And, you know, we had won the States. So we were the, you know, the best team for our age group in Maryland. And then you go to regionals, you play all the different States from this region. We made it to the finals and we're winning one, nothing with about two minutes to go in the game in the Eastern regional championship. And I'm playing goalie. And I made a couple of you know, decent saves during the game. Let me let me tell you, this is many many years ago now, and I re- I remember this like I'm like in I, I'm in the moment. I remember it so well, and um, you know, I was pretty short, like not even five feet tall, and most of my teammates were taller. Um, but I think I made up for it in my footwork, and you know, just being such an aggressive goalkeeper that it never really was a huge issue. But we're up one nothing. There's two minutes left in the game, and um, you know one of their midfielders from the other team, you know, dribbles past midfield. She takes you know one or two extra touches after midfield, and you know blasts one high upper ninety over me, and I have no prayer at it. And so it's one one, and there's like less than a minute to go, and. I'm thinking there's no way that, you know, that we, we've got to score. Something's going to happen. There's no way they're going to score again. I'm already mentally preparing myself for overtime. I really would want to go into PKs. Shootouts were my favorite. And because I, I thrive under pressure and I love that, you know, that situation. Um, sure enough, with like seconds to go in the game, exact same thing happens. A different player on their team comes down and blasts one. And I just have no prayer at it. You know, I'm, not even five feet tall, like I said, and it's upper 90 corner. You know, I jumped as high as I could, which wasn't very high. And it was devastating. So we lose the game two to one and it was, it was devastating. What's it feel like for you as you replay it? Um, you know, it's not about what it feels like in that moment because I didn't, I wasn't prepared for what, for what was going to happen next. It was devastating. It was a letdown. I felt like I let my team down. Um, I was I was really hard on myself. Um, I was already thinking about how I was going to get better and what I could do to jump higher, um, but I never had that opportunity. So what happens next is my coach um, starts recruiting other goalies to replace me on our team that summer. Um, tall, a- athletic goalies who may not even have had much experience playing goalkeeper the fundamentals of the game like the skills the stuff that that I had where I really excelled these other two he recruited didn't but they were taller and bigger than me so he brings them in and we're you know that summer we're preparing for the fall season and you know I'm he basically tries to make me a field player and um 
it was rough. And he sat, you know, once that next season started, he sat me on the bench to start the game. He brought in these other goalkeepers and I just kept working. I just kept working hard. And I tried really hard to become a field player. I, I thought, okay, I, this is going to happen. I'm going to have to, you know, I, I know most of the, you know, I obviously understand the fundamentals of, of the game and um, maybe I can be a defender and use some of the same strategies, you know, as a goalkeeper. And it was really a rough time for me. Um, I didn't talk about it a lot. I didn't complain. Um, I worked really hard and I just kept working harder thinking I would be a field player, but I didn't try to do anything about the goalkeeper thing. I sort of decided, okay, I guess this is what they're, they're telling me. I'm not meant to be a goalkeeper because I'm too short. And I, I don't know that I accepted it, but I a- approached it like I was accepting it. What were the people in your life telling you during that moment or um, during that time? You know, my parents um, hated seeing me like that, and they just were pissed off at the coach. Um, and I think they, behind the scenes, were probably trying to deal with it, like politically with the coach and the other parents. Um, I didn't, I don't know much that was going on around it during the time, but I thought about trying out for another team, for a competitor, um, which actually another team, um, I, I did speak with the coaches and, and um, some of the players from, from the Potomac team, the Potomac soccer club team, and I was about ready to go play there, and I would have had to split time as a goalkeeper there, but I was going to do that. I was about ready to do that. It was, it was a tough decision for me. And then I was a freshman in high school at this point, and um, girls' soccer in Montgomery County, Maryland, back then was in the spring. And, um, you know, everywhere else it was in the fall. So – Freshman year of high school, I um, worked all fall and all winter um, lifting weights for the first time ever. I had a goalkeeper trainer working with me through the winter inside doing like crazy drills. And I decided I was going to try out for goalkeeper for the for the school team, even though I wasn't the starting goalkeeper on my club team anymore. And I really wasn't playing much. And I had like it was it was back to that whole short term goal thing. Like I decided I was going to make varsity as a freshman as a goalkeeper and something no one had ever done at, at Whitman um, to that point. And I, it was mental. I mean, I got out there and talk about fearless. I mean, I sacrificed my body against these senior girls who were much older than me. And Can bigger. you describe what it feels like when you get into that space that just says, I'm going to make this happen. Can you, can you try to unpack that a little bit? It's um, gosh, I think it's hard. It's really hard to describe but I think about it a lot because I think about how you're in this zone. I know I was in the zone and like no one could score on me when I was in that zone. I was, like I keep saying, I really wasn't that good. I wasn't like so skilled or so athletic or so, it wasn't raw talent. But when I was in a zone, I was unstoppable. And I think then, you know, when you get in that zone, that brings with it an unmatched level of confidence. And when you have that level of confidence, you can do anything. And, you know, it's, that's why I say it's so much a mental game. And actually I equate that to a lot of the things that my clients are going through today. You know, Malcolm Brogdon talks a lot about how he thinks confidence is plays such an important role in NBA player success on the court. So I think I, you know, I was in that zone. I don't know how to describe how I got there. I don't know, um, what it was, but I, once I got there, it was, it, everything else took off from there. And I was so confident and, um, just um, so laser focused that 
no, like the best players, you know, during tryouts couldn't score on me. And at that point, I think the the varsity coach at Whitman, Sam DeBone, was kind of shocked. He's like, what am I going to do with this little tiny chick? Like, we need to have her, obviously. So I made varsity and that was a big deal. And then I said, okay, obviously I'm not giving up the goalkeeper thing. That's how I ended up back in, um, you know, the the world of being a goalkeeper. And then eventually on my club team, because I think that sort of, um, you know, I guess, um, you know, triggered the rest of, of my success back on my club team too. There's some science around this idea of how you handle adversity and you can either handle it as a challenge or as a threat. And if you think about a challenge, challenges, we're going toward it, mm-hmm. threat, we're going away from it. And as you're telling that story, that's what started to go through my head is like, at first, maybe you were threatened. You've got these two girls coming in that are taller, more athletic. Mom and dad might be behind the scenes doing some things. You might even be thinking about maybe I should go away from this team and go split time somewhere else. Heck, maybe I even even need to go away from being a goalie altogether and play out and play defense. And then it sounds like the opportunity that presented itself at school was, all right, this is a challenge right now and let's go toward it. And in that moment, that challenge or that competition helped bring out the best you. Uh, and then you took that challenge and went toward it. And I think it's it's such an important concept for all of us because a lot of times our initial reaction when we face something really bad is we're threatened. And the reason why that happens is because our brain is wired to protect us. It's mm-hmm. wired to keep us safe. So the brain's going to say, don't go toward that hot stove, go away from it. But in our world of a capitalist society where competition does matter, you so have true. to be able to go toward the challenge. And there's some science around what happens to the body and the brain when you think about it as a challenge rather than a threat. And your story right there is like, okay, I'm at my best when I'm challenged. And the moment that I'm going at it as a threat, I could even see your facial and body expressions as you were describing that time in your life. There was almost like a droop that occurred, uh, sadness. And that happens to all of us in our world. And I, it's something I constantly, I literally was talking to an athlete before you came in here, uh, a basketball player about it. And, you know, he started talking about playing time and, uh, you know, the situation he's in and, and how he wants to handle this upcoming season. And we talked about the idea of going toward a challenge versus a way as a threat. And it's just a, I, I found it to be a massively, massively important concept for myself. So true. I totally agree. And I, you know, I think we, I deal with that a lot. Um, you know, in various aspects of my career today, um, we're always, I I find that we're always talking about, um, the variables that you can control versus those which you can't. And, um, you know, we, we get so hung up on, um, just focus on yourself and, you know, do, you know, your work ethic and outwork everyone and the end result will take care of itself. And, all of those things that you know clearly I, I buy into and I live by, but at the same time, that's not you have at some point you learn in life that's not always the case. Like if you outwork everyone else, you will succeed because um, you know sometimes there are barriers. Sometimes luck. They right. Sometimes luck. You know comes your way sometimes it you know the combination of luck and timing and opportunity and whatnot but on the flip side i don't you know the the idea of posing a threat um and calling it a threat versus a challenge you know i I, sometimes you really do get stuck up against a wall because 
you're dealing with a coach who's just not reasonable um, and you you are doing everything you can and you're at, you know and everyone knows you're outworking everyone but for whatever reason there's you know a disconnect and you're not being rewarded properly there's another so I'm, I'm reading my book and as you came in I was working on a chapter and you know what the book's about and the listeners know what it's about because we talk about it all the time on the podcast mindset for preparation and mindset for performance and how you need to shift and the chapter I'm actually working on right now is about in preparation it needs to be work and we need to actually put the work in and you know for lack of a better word punch punch the time clock and, and make sure that we're actually putting work in and then when you're performing it should be about playing we play instruments uh you know actors are in a play we play basketball and oftentimes in my in my work i see clients that are so work ethic driven and they work 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 that they don't let go and just play when they need to just play. And the fearlessness that you had in between the pipes for that tryout was a play fearlessness. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, I'm going to just stop everything and I'm going to play the position. And I think what often happens is people try to work the performance. And if you try to work it, the body can tense up and it doesn't allow us to let go to actually play. And we play sports. That's what we do. And if you go and watch, you know, the eight-year-old version of you on a soccer field, you were just playing. Your kids right now, they're playing. So and there's an amazing freedom and fearlessness that comes from playing. And that's why you'll see, I remember like Florida Gulf Coast a couple years ago when they had the uh -huh. Dunk City. Uh -huh. Like those guys were just playing. Yep. And you see it happen with the Red Sox winning the World Series. They're playing or we're in Washington, D.C. And you could see them, the Capitals, playing in, this, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And they almost like you. It's so like, true. we're going to win this game, but we're going to play it. And if you try to work it, and this is where I think people mistake work ethic and effort, like work ethic to me is the work that we put in in preparation. Effort is the performance. And you were diving all over the place to make stops, but that's joy. That's playing. Um, and I think we talk about work ethic, um, but I also think there's something called play ethic. Like what is your play ethic and what do you like when you're playing? And it doesn't always have to be smiling and butterflies and rainbows. Like I think of Kevin Garnett as a guy who was very intense between the lines, but he had joy and passion with that intensity and he was playing basketball. You see a guy like Russ Westbrook, he plays the game with an intensity. And so I, I, like, I love the idea of when I'm envisioning who you were, you told me, look, I went to work my freshman year of high school. I hired a, a coach to work with me. I started lifting weights. Like it was work. And when I got between those pipes, I just played. Yep. Um, so I'm so curious as, you, as you're, so now things are starting to come around for you in soccer. When did college soccer become something that you thought was a possibility? Freshman and you're yeah, starting. And, uh -huh, and I was on the ODP team, the, the Olympic development program, yeah. um, which is, you know, basically the feeder system, which ultimately gets you to the national team uh, for the Olympic, you know, the United States Olympic team. Um, and so, you know, again, it's, it's same thing. Like once I got to a certain level and knew mentally, I, I, I was good enough to be there and I was one of the best at my position. I didn't have any doubts. When did you grow? Um, probably like sophomore year of high school. So freshman year, you establish yourself as, as a short, tiny, yeah. tiny little beast yeah. of a goalie. And then sophomore year, you get the gift of, of growth. 
yeah, I don't know that it changed my game all that much, probably. Um, which is, yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, that's so interesting because I'm sure the five foot version of you saying, if I just get a couple inches, it'll change. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I maybe had a little bit of an easier time, um, you know, catching the high balls, but, um, you know, it's still a lot about the footwork and getting in the right position. Um, you know, there's a lot of physics involved when you're a goalkeeper and you're talking about the angle, cutting off the angles and where you're, where you're standing in relation to the goal versus the, um, you know, the shooter. Cause I work with college women's soccer and a lot of those goalies are not necessarily that tall, tall because right. even the five foot eight ones can't necessarily get to those places exactly. that you're talking about. Exactly. So it's just interesting as a short little person when I, when I was in high school <laughs> and thinking about height and, you know, right. what would a couple inches do here and there? Right. Uh, it, there's probably some high school kids that are listening to this and they're thinking that height is is the uh, determining factor of their success. But I loved how you said, I then, I went to work. Like mm -hmm. you earned it and you went toward the challenge. And I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm not tall enough, so it's just not going to happen. Yeah. No, I don't think that was an issue. So then I think, you know, um, I started getting recruited just because of the level. You know, when you're playing at that level and you're going to – when our team was, you know, pretty well-known nationally, one of the better teams in our age group, and certain tournaments, college coaches were there, you know, when we were sophomores and juniors. We, we, we played up. Um, our club team played up. For a lot of tournaments, meaning that when we were sophomores, we played in in the division with juniors and seniors. We had juniors and seniors on our team at one point in high school um, to make us more competitive to be able to play at that level. So college coaches were just at the tournaments, um, and I, you know, I, I just kind of always thought that that would be an option for me. And then at some point, it was more about finding the right school and being able to play soccer versus going to the best soccer school. Um, or, the, you know, a top D1 school. So I was considering a couple of D3 schools. I got recruited by D1 schools and then ultimately um, chose Penn for the academics, not for the soccer. Um, but I did get recruited uh, to play there. And, um, you know, the women's soccer team, when I got to Penn, was not uh, as competitive as the rest of, you know, D1 women's soccer programs. And I always tell people, I don't even think it was as competitive as what I was used to playing travel soccer in the D.C. area growing up. I, I always say that my club team would have killed my college team. Um, so it was just it was just a different level than I was used to. It was a different experience. Academics were first. What I loved most about soccer was the obviously the team camaraderie, um, the team aspect. Um, you know, going through everything together as a team and learning what that means to reward the assists and and go through the the highs and lows with you know your teammates. And when I first got to Penn, it was um, you know we we I, I just remember vividly in the preseason when I first got there, we were taking a bus ride to Harvard for a preseason scrimmage, and it was like crickets on the bus ride. No one was talking. People were studying. They had their books. Um, not a lot of socializing. And it made me feel sad. Um, it made me feel like that was like the, the very reason why soccer meant so much to me was almost being taken away. Um, so I was a little confused and um, felt a little lost. Um, but, you know, you learn that's some part of, you know, going through life and learning how to uh, overcome, you know, certain 
it, it's all about transitions and changes and things not turning out exactly how you envision and, um, you know, what, you know, having realistic expectations for oneself, others managing expectations. I learned a lot um, in that transition in my life. Um, and I think a lot of people say that they learned, you know, the transition to college is, you know, a major personal growth to personal development um, from the different things you're experiencing on your own for the first time. It's just a lot being thrown at you at once. So, And there's just space. You, you you don't have a lot of space, I would imagine, when you're playing the soccer at the level you're playing at a high school and you're going to you know, a good high school, public mm-hmm. academic school. You obviously did well enough in school that you, you cared enough to get into a school like Penn. And so what happens in high school a lot is we're just kids go through the motions they don't have a lot of space to reflect on what's going on. And then you get to college and college, you get space and being a D one athlete is, is certainly hard and more time consuming, but you still have space even to walk across campus. Right. Mm-hmm. If you think about high school, you're on a bus or you're getting driven. It, there's just not space. And so then you true. go home and maybe you have dinner with your family or you have dinner, then you go homework and it's just like a hamster wheel. What happens? And I work with college athletes and I love working with them because for the first time, they're starting to really think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Still may think a lot like their parents did, but they have the option. And it's so interesting that you say this. Actually, this is really fascinating because I hadn't thought about it this way before. But in the whole um, debate right now in my world about the one and dones, and they're going to get rid of the one and dones, and um, high school basketball players being able to go directly to the pros. And, you know, everyone's on one side of the debate there. And I always go back to this whole thing of whether it's in, you know, an NCAA institution where you're a collegiate athlete or somewhere else with less structure and handholding that you had previously in high school. I do believe that it is such an important time in an individual's life for for personal growth and um you know, independence and development and life skills. And, um, you know, that that's what I think is so fascinating about that debate that people often overlook because, you know, right now everyone's talking about, you know, compensating collegiate athletes, let, how long they should stay in school. Should it be more like football? Um, should we really let them go straight to the pros? And they're talking about, you know, all the different, you know, the pros and cons on both sides of the argument. But there's not as much discussion, I don't think, about what you just touched on, which is so important. The idea of like this is the first time for most of these kids they're completely independent. They have all this space and all this time. And it's such an important time in their lives for, you know, personal growth. Well, what happens to many of them is they build self-awareness for the first time. So high school athletes, and I work with a lot of them and and some of them are great, but there is tends to be a lack of self-awareness because they don't really have time to ask themselves questions. They're just going. Mm -hmm. And college is really intended to ask questions, right? Do I go to school? Do I go to that party? Do I walk across campus or do I take a butt? There's just optionality in a way that's different than the shelter of a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a parent's job is to really not necessarily give you options, but provide pathways for you to go forward. Uh, so it's fascinating. I want to go back to you. So um, you play soccer at Penn. 
how do you end up getting into this sports agent industry? Um, walk us through that path and, and what that looked like for you. Um, so I would say getting into the sports agent path, um, you know, by accident, probably only more recently. I've been in the industry in this job essentially for 18 years now, but I've only been an, a certified agent actually representing players um, for just, you know, a few years. Um, but, you know, sports was such an important part of my life growing up. It was my passion. It was where I was, ha- you know, I-, I was happiness and found the most fulfillment when I was involved in sport in one way or another, not just on the soccer field and not just in soccer, but um, the thrill of being part of a team. I also played field hockey in high school um, and was the captain of, of the varsity field hockey team. Did you play goalie? No, no. Nope. You played out for that. Yep. Interesting. Very different sport and picked it up quickly um, at the time. Now, uh, field hockey is so much more competitive in the county than it was back then, too. Then a lot of soccer players, because soccer girls' soccer was in the spring, um, played field hockey in the fall because, you know, they wanted to do something and stay in shape. And, um, you know, the basic fundamentals of the game are similar, although you're, there's a stick and a ball involved. Um, but I picked it up pretty quickly, and I loved it. Um Loved more being part of the team, the team camaraderie and that aspect of it than, you know, the the fundamentals of the game per se. But, um, you know, and then I was actually a ball girl for the Washington Bullets while I was in high school. Um, the first year there ever were there ever was a ball girl in the NBA. Um, and so I just loved being a part of that, too. I didn't think I was going to make a career in basketball or in professional sports, but I just that was so much fun for me. It was just passionate. I was passionate about feeling like I was part of a team and organization. Um, so I, you know, dur- in, in during the summers, I the in, my internships, oh, all of them had some some something to do with professional sport, but not necessarily the representation side. Not necessarily, you know, thinking I was going to be in the business of sport. I was more thinking I was going to go in, you know, the finance world, um, you know, going to Penn and being at Wharton, it was that that's all that you knew. That's all people talked about. And, um, I thought that was, you know, the the best path for me and then had a, a few internships and then actually, um, just, you know, reached out cold to David Falk and to Curtis Polk, um, had some connections to Curtis through some, you know, mutual friends and, um, actually, you know, through, through family and, you know, came in more for like an informational interview to learn about, they didn't even have interns at the time. Um, David Falk had just sold fame to SFX in 1998. And, um, this was 2000. I, um, just came saying, I, you know, I really just want to learn about the financial aspects of the business. I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the business of sport. So it was, the idea was to just spend a couple of months in the summer, um, learning about it and seeing how I might be able to contribute. And I never left. Um, you know, I, I got put in the, I thought I was going to be assisting with finance department, um, tax prep work, which I did a little bit of, but, um, I got put into this talent marketing division. Um, we, you know, our group was about, we, we had four or five, there were four or five executives in the DC office, but SFX was a, you know, a big agency media conglomerate having offices around the country and a few, um, globally. And, um, our team, the talent marketing team 
was probably like 15 or 16 people with four or five in the DC office, most of them in the New York office, some in LA. And we were tasked with um, securing endorsement opportunities for SFX athletes across all sports. So we SFX represented baseball players, basketball players, Olympic athletes. Um, because the DC office focused in basketball, um, I ended up, you know, working more in the basketball group. And so I was doing some marketing, just a lot of cold calling, um, staying in the office really late, um, you know, working my ass off just to try to make my mark, to try to get a deal, sales, you know, it was just all about selling, which if you're competitive, that that really does feed your competitive drive. What other qualities for, for salespeople do they need other than competitiveness? Um, persistence, um, an enormous amount of persistence. Um, and um, I think certain level of creativity on, on sort of figuring out how to sell whatever product you're selling and, um, you know, do it in a way um, that is intriguing um, uh, to, you know, the person on the other end of the phone. And, um, you know, I think you go back to the fearlessness and the, um, you know, you're just really focused in that moment on on convincing with conviction whoever's on the other end of the phone and not letting them hang up until you get a deal. Did you do anything to prime yourself for that? And I'm also thinking about as a goalie, were there anything, was there anything you intentionally did routine wise to make sure that you were in the space that you wanted to be in? I wish I could say yes. But so when I was a goalie, you know, I, I was, um, and still am extremely, um, um, superstitious hmm. i had like my whole routine my father used to make so much fun of me um some of my teammates made fun of me too where i would do the exact same thing before every game to get in the zone spit on my gloves jump on the cross jump touch the crossbar um step around the goalie box like yeah, yeah i had like whatever it was it was my routine and it was superstitious but it was my routine to like get in the zone um in in my work life no i i don't think um you know, I did, there was anything intentional on getting in that performance mindset. But I, I know you, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit. But one thing that I know you always are, you are always what? Prepared. As you're prepared. Right. That's for always. sure. For like sure. literally sticky notes in front of Danielle right now. Um, Which I haven't mentioned any of them. I know. So. I don't know what you, what you plan to, <laughs> yes, to chat about, but no, Danielle comes in, um, always like I, I'm looking at her stuff on the couch right now there's umbrella there's purse there looks like a journal phone and then like a binder of of information so like you know i think one thing that you talked about earlier is for every negotiation you would know the ins and outs mm -hmm. and all of the attention to detail mm -hmm. when did were you always an attention to detail person yeah because yeah. i i think it's one of my weaknesses is like my wife thank god is an attention to detail person but the, the those details sometimes escape that's me. A, that's absolutely one of my biggest. What strengths. processes or systems do you put in place to make sure that you're you're doing all that? That I'm lucky. I think it comes second nature to me. I think you know. I always joke. I say my checklists have checklists. Like I said earlier, that my mind was always racing when I would get in bed at night of what I could do next and how I could be better. And that it's still like that today. Um, thinking about how I can be a better mom. 
thinking about what I'm doing wrong as a mother and how I could be, you know, what parenting techniques I could improve on. I'm making checklists. I'm reaching out to specialists. I'm researching. David, my my partner, David Falk, calls me the research, research queen. He relies heavily on me for, um, you know, researching information and being prepared for every meeting we have, Every whether it's a recruiting meeting or just a meeting, um, you know, with a Fortune 500 company about something. or So that's your superpower. Team. You're never going to be uh, out-prepared by someone else. You're never going to walk into a room feeling like you haven't done the work. Uh, you even said before we turn on the mic, like, yeah, I spent an hour thinking about, all right, what are some of the themes that Brian's interested in? Uh, most people don't walk in here and say that. So uh, as I'm trying to get a better sense of how you operate, I think that that's probably a, a key component to Absolutely. what makes you successful. Absolutely. And I think anyone who knows me would say that for sure. But I think that it's so important um, to, if that's how, if that's, you know, your, your, your special sauce or whatever you want to call it, that's my strength. And I know that it's so important to, um, you know, play on that and use that to your advantage and, you know, know that you're going to be overprepared and never cut corners, which I never do. But the most important thing that I've learned more recently in my life is, and this is a perfect example, I felt like I overprepared for this, knowing what themes you wanted to touch on and just sort of anticipating what we might discuss so I could, you know, spend some time thinking about it ahead of time. We have yet to discuss a single thing that I thought about ahead of time. I can't tell you how often that happens in life and in business for me. And that's the most important thing I've learned more recently is you can prepare and you can over-prepare and you can make sure you out-prepare the competition. And and I do that every single time. You, I'm also really, I think, really good at anticipating um, the other side when we're in a negotiation, um, anticipating anything that may come up so that I'm prepared. But just like today... And so often, um, it's not what exactly what you expect. And what you prepared is not relevant. And so how do you adapt and how do you approach it in that moment when, as you call it, you're, it's, it's performance time? And I think, um, you know, while I probably did that in soccer, I prepared. And then once you're in the game, you're just in the zone and you play, like you said. But I think then there was a big gap in my life. Um, where I wasn't as good at that. And when I prepared and then I'd be in a meeting and it wasn't going the way I anticipated, I started to doubt myself, um, you know, became a little insecure, questioned my value, how I was going to add value to the conversation since it wasn't what I prepared. And then at some point, um, the I think because of probably the intersection of, of enough experience and um, and confidence, um, I I realized that you prepare however you're going to prepare. And then when it's game time and you're in the zone, you make sure you're in the zone and you're in that moment and you're present in that moment. And although you don't think the exact preparation is relevant, something can translate if you just, if you just really focus on being present and being in the moment. Well, two themes that 
I, I know from my framework of preparation and performance come out there. One is perfectionism in preparation and then adaptability mm-hmm. in performance. That's exactly right. And so you are going to try to make sure you know everything and mm-hmm. get it exactly right and then be adaptable when you're in the room. And the other is visualizing in preparation and trying to see yourself and what it might look like and then being present. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think you did both of those for this, but I would imagine you approach meetings like that. So now I'm curious, what is what did you have written down that you think is, is relevant to, to the audience? Cause you've listened to some of these episodes, you know, some of the people we've had on, you've helped me get uh, some of the people we've had on. So, uh, what do you think this audience would want to hear from you, um, that you had prepared, uh, for coming on the show? Um, you know, questions around, um, and, and, and that's what I was saying about it, you know adapting that something you prepared can um, translate and still be used because I think you know I was thinking at it I was thinking about it from the perspective of the listeners who may want to hear about how I've been successful um, you know what it's like to be the only female agent in a male dominated world so what is it what advice you what would, is it like? Finish, like what advice you would <laughs> yeah. give to break into the industry. Um, the changing aspects of my industry right now, which are, you know, hot topics. But, you know, in a funny way, I think we, it, it, all of it is about the theme of, um, you know, approaching, um, you know, key moments and, and success and competitiveness. So I, I sort of did actually address a lot of it, just not in the way I anticipated. Um, but I was talking about, you know, um, advice, like for networking and for getting jobs and what I look for in hiring and career, you know, talking about a career path or about, um, you know, the NBA and where it's going and all of the different, you know, pertinent um, topics right now, hot topics right now in the NBA, those things that, but I think, I think one of the things I talk about all those things every day. So this is, this is way more fun. I think one of the things I love about the podcast is I think you're, a lot of people come on thinking they're going to talk about what they do mm-hmm. and I'm more interested in who you are. And so, um, like I, I think our society often wants to know how to do something. And I think much more can be learned from who, who someone is. And it's interesting that we went to fearlessness because to me, that's like a big part of this conversation. And I just thought about this quote from Oprah who said like, one goal that I still have for myself is to live fearlessly. And you look at someone like Oprah Mm -hmm. who has done so much, right? She's done. Let's talk about her resume and what she's done, but who she is, she's still working on getting between the pipes and being fearless. Uh, And I think that goes back to the road to character, right? Resume versus eulogy. Yep. Yeah. And 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 I think about that all the time. So that is the theme that I wanted to get in, in my preparation today. That is, you know, who I, that is who I am. That is what I talk about. The times that I've gone and I've been a keynote speaker recently, or I've been on um, a panel and I'm, you know, speaking to these groups. I always talk about um, what I believe makes me successful is about who I am, not what I do. I talk about my relationships that are so important to me. I talk about having genuine interactions and meaningful connections with people because I care about people. That's the part of my job that, um, you know, I, I care most about and that I'm, and I'm, I'm proud, I'm most proud of. It's not about any deals I've done. It's not about the fact that I happen to be the only female right now. Um, in this role. It's not about any of that. It's about the relation. I'm most proud of the relationships I have um, and the people 
um, with whom I've worked for so many years in my career, and I've had to earn their respect, and I've done it the right way. The one element that you did bring up that I am curious about, and that you mentioned a couple of times, is being a female in a male-dominated world. And so- I would So lo- by the way, I only mention that because yeah. everyone else mentions it. Yeah, but um, how do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, so I don't. And that's yeah. what I say when I'm asked about it. Um, before um, the Washington Post did this feature on me um, last year, I didn't even forget about no one who I didn't know that I was the only female registered NBP agent with active clients. It wasn't something I I paid attention I paid attention to. It wasn't something I cared about, and I didn't even want them to write the story about that because I didn't want to draw attention to it. And I didn't like I wasn't flattered when I found out that statistic. I was pissed off. Mm. Like why aren't there more? Why is that a thing? And so the reason the only reason I did it is because if somehow that you know, feature in the post, um, you know, paves the way for more talented, young, driven, competitive women to be successful in this business, then it was worthwhile for me. But I've never made it a thing. Um, you know, my whole life, I was just one of the guys I hung around with guys. And it was that's where I was comfortable. And it was natural. And I never thought about it. And same thing in my career, like I was the only female on that talent marketing team. Um, from, you know, during that time. And I never thought about it. I didn't make it a thing. And I didn't, because I, I just, I made my talent and my value known through my work product and through the way that I carried myself. I didn't make gender a thing. And, um, you know, maybe some people would make it a thing and you, you could, you know, one could argue you could use it to your advantage. One could argue, you know, you, you, it makes you work harder because you have so much more at stake. But I just, I just didn't grow up thinking that way or approaching things that way. I grew up that I'm, I'm in this because I belong here. I'm an agent because I'm competitive as hell and I'm passionate about representing these athletes. And that's what makes me a good agent, not a good female agent, just a good agent, period. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap it up and we could talk for hours danielle and we, d- we do talk for hours so I-, I feel fortunate but i'm happy to introduce you to my community and hopefully there is a there is an opportunity that you're aware of to inspire other badass women to go for their dreams and, and to go kick doors or glass ceilings down and, absolutely and i think that's pretty cool uh, that you think about it that way. And I know you're not a big social media person. Uh, and I know you like to be behind the scenes, but is there anything that you want the world to know about that you think deserves a megaphone? And it, it, it literally could be anything, but I just want to give you the opportunity to do so. No, I actually really enjoy being behind the scenes. I'm not active on social media. I'm, um, you know, savvy enough that I, that I consume, uh, social media to I think to make me better at my job and you know to to always be consuming unique content important content but I don't like to put out as much because I really like I've always said I, I I enjoy being more of the behind the scenes um, type of person who is empowering the athletes I represent or empowering members of my team people I'm working with whom I'm working to um, you know do better or be more successful I think that's my sweet spot. Um, but like I keep saying, the most important thing to me is these, um, 
meaningful connections. So I urge people to reach out. I'm I try to always respond, and if I can make an, an a meaningful connection with someone and inspire someone that way, um, I think it's more impactful than doing it to the masses. What's well, amazing as I think about your story and your journey, this idea that you're this goalie and uh, your job as a goalie is to get between the pipes uh, and sacrifice yourself for the greater good and for the team and how much uh, fulfillment you got out of that and, and sort of talking about being on the bus at Penn and not necessarily feeling that same camaraderie there that you felt and you called them family earlier, the team that you grew up with and the ability to serve them. And then you're talking about, I like to also serve my partner, David, or serve my clients and, uh, you know, be a servant leader in that way. Um, and so I want to thank you for helping me on, on my journey. Cause you're one of the people that I often unpack where I'm going and how I'm thinking about things with. And, uh, I always enjoy our conversation over lunch or, uh, over coffee or whatever it might be. And, Likewise. Uh, you know, I, I do think of you as somebody who is going towards fearlessness. And I don't think any of us can ever live fearlessly. And I don't think it's healthy to always live fearlessly. It's like, if you were living fearlessly, you'd probably drink and drive. You'd probably <laughs> walk across the street without looking both directions, you know, walk out of your house, Good point. you know, without a, a umbrella when it's pouring out, like living just fearlessly would not be a good way to live. But I do love how you are exploring fearlessness in a way that is, um, inspiring. So thank you for that. And and thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I felt like I overprepared for this, knowing what themes you wanted to touch on and just sort of anticipating what we might discuss so I could, you know, spend some time thinking about it ahead of time. We have yet to discuss a single thing that I thought about ahead of time. I can't tell you how often that happens in life and in business for me. And that's the most important thing I've learned more recently is you can prepare and you can over-prepare and you can make sure you out-prepare the competition. And and I do that every single time. You, I'm also really, I think, really good at anticipating um, the other side when we're in a negotiation, um, anticipating anything that may come up so that I'm prepared. But just like today... And so often, um, it's not exactly what you expect. And what you prepared is not relevant. And so how do you adapt and how do you approach it in that moment when, as you call it, you're, it's, it's performance time? And I think, um, you know, while I probably did that in soccer, I prepared. And then once you're in the game, you're just in the zone and play, like you said. But I think then there was a big gap in my life. Um, where I wasn't as good at that and when I prepared and then I'd be in a meeting and it wasn't going the way I anticipated I started to doubt myself Um, you know became a little insecure questioned my value how I was going to add value to the conversation since it wasn't what I prepared and then at some point um, I think because of probably the intersection of of enough experience and um, and confidence um I, I realized that you prepare however you're going to prepare and then when it's game time and you're in the zone, you make sure you're in the zone and you're in that moment and you're present in that moment and although you don't think the exact preparation is relevant, something can translate 
if you just if you just really focus on being present and being in the moment.